rather than men. Let me pray and just ask God to open up our hearts and eyes. Lord, I I pray that you would open our hearts as only you can to uh, not only understand your word this morning, but to be changed by it. Uh, That's our hope. We want to be made more and more into the image of your Son. And we know you do that through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the key verse uh, to this passage this morning is found in verse 29. You can look there if you want to. And it's while Peter is standing before all the powerful Jewish leaders who had had all the earthly power, at least. And um, they they had the power, actually, if they wanted to, to put him and the rest of the apostles to death if they wanted to. Uh, And uh, don't choose to do that here. But he stands before them. He makes a statement, which is the title of our message. We must obey God rather than men. Um, Peter was being persecuted for doing just that, obeying God rather than men. Yet he continues to obey God in the midst of persecution. And then after being beaten again, verse 41, uh, which we we see, um, I mean verse 40, and then verse 41, uh, we see his response after he is beaten and most likely um, uh, the other... uh, 11 apostles were beaten as well. Uh, The context kind of points to that. Um, He and John for sure are mentioned, but most likely all 12 of them were there. Uh, But look what what it says there in in, in, uh, verse uh, 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, this is after being beaten, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Persecution for the sake of Jesus and rejoicing and giving thanks for it are marks of followers of Christ. That's a mark of a follower of Christ. That is proof that there are followers of Christ. That they can rejoice and give thanks for persecution for the name of Jesus. Now, let's be honest. None of us here in this room at this moment in our country stand before someone because we preach or teach or talk about Jesus stand before someone who can take our life who would take our life that's not where we are now you're maybe thinking hey we're heading that way we may but we're not there now and yet Peter in the face of persecution none of us have experienced before and the rest of the apostles, they obey God rather than men. And then when they're beaten, they rejoice. They, they give thanks that they were worthy to be beaten for the name of Jesus. Well, many of you are familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom, who, with her father and other family members, helped many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. She, along with her sister Betsy, were imprisoned for their actions. And they were imprisoned and beaten because they too said and believed and lived out those words, we must obey God rather than men. That's why they were in prison, because they were willing to obey God rather than men. Now, I, don't want to, I want to read you an excerpt from Corrie Ten Boom's most famous book, The Hiding Place, where Corrie and her sister, Betsy, are being moved to a different barrack in the concentration camp that they're in. Now, this is a long quote, I cut as much as I could out, but, um, and I don't normally like to read a long 
uh, portion from a book, but I think this is important for us this morning. Listen um, as Corey Tim Boone writes, as they're being transferred to a different barrack, and they come into the barrack. They're being led to their place. Our, notice, our noses told us first that the place was filthy. Somewhere, plumbing had backed up. The bedding was soiled and rancid. Then our eyes adjusted to the gloom. We saw that there was no individual beds at all, but great squares, but great square tiers stacked three high and wedged side by side and end to end with only an occasional narrow aisle slicing through. We followed our guide single file. The aisle was not wide enough for two, fighting back the claustrophobia of these platforms rising everywhere above us. At last, she pointed to a second tier in the center of a large block. To reach it, we had to stand on the bottom level, haul ourselves up, and then crawl across three other straw-covered platforms to reach the one that we would share with how many? The deck above us was too close to let us sit up. We lay back, struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. Suddenly, I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. We scrambled across the intervening platforms, heads low to avoid another bump, dropped down the aisle, and hedged our way to a patch of light. Here, and here, another one, I I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said, so matter-of-factly, it took me a second to realize she was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer before we ask, as he always does. In the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long, dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight, then drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. In the feeble light, I turned to the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed written expressly for Ravensbrook. Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh, yes. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barrack. I stared at her. Then around me at the dark, foul, aired room. Such as, I said, such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. Just such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy, thank you for the crowding here since we're packed so close that many will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jam, cram, stuff, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on uh, serenely, for the fleas and for... The fleas? This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make, grateful, make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. Then later, Corey then writes, 
One evening, I got back to the barracks late from a wood-gathering foray outside the walls. A light snow lay on the ground. It was hard to find the sticks and twigs with which a small stove was kept going in each room. Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so we could wait through the food line together. Her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we've never understood why we had so much freedom in the, in, in, in the big room, she said. Well, I found out. That afternoon, she said, there had been confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes, and they had asked a supervisor to come in and settle it. But she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, and neither would the guards. And you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas! That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas! My mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. I remember Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures. I could see no use for. You see, Corey and Betsy were committed to obeying God rather than men. In the midst of their persecution, they found a way to give thanks and rejoice for being considered worthy, considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And you and I can do the same. You want to know the secret that enabled them and the apostles to obey God rather than men? And secondly, rejoice in the midst of that persecution. It's simple. They were indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. That's how. It's simple. And see, the whole thing in Acts is this is a game changer. This is a life changer. For the very first time in the history of the world, people were indwelt by the God of the universe. For the very first time. Never before until... This day in Pentecost in Acts 2, never before. He'd come upon them, he would lead them, but never in them. And now he's in them. And the apostles have him living in him, and somehow in the midst of their persecution and being beaten again, they were able to rejoice, to give thanks that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And we can too, because of the same Holy Spirit who lives in us. So let's learn, turn our attention here to this passage this morning and watch how these men handle persecution with a resolute and rejoicing heart. And I'm going to work down through this passage again. It's a long passage, um, explaining and pointing out certain things along the way in the end of our time together. I'm going to suggest five ways in which we can live out by the power of the Holy Spirit the principles, at least some of the principles are taught here. Before we begin here in verse 17, let, let me remind you of the context of how we got to this point here in verse seven, in 17 of chapter 5. Um, Peter preaches uh, a couple chapters before, and he, and he and John are put into prison. They were threatened and warned not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And, and to, to which Peter responds, you can look back there in uh, chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. Look how he responds to this threat. But Peter... And John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they let them know, we're not going to stop. You can threaten us. You can tell us not to do it. We're not going to stop. And then they're released. Here we saw an attack on the church and God's mission for the church from the outside. From the outside. All right. Last week in the remainder of chapter 4 and into the first half of chapter 5, we saw an attack on the church and God's mission for the church from the inside. 
So we have an attack on the, from the outside. Then we have an attack from the inside when Ananias and Sapphira lie to God. They were being hypocrites. They were trying to present themselves as being one thing, but they really weren't. And God, early on in the church, we talk about this, how he did this also early on in Israel's um, existence. He makes an example to let people know that sin is serious. Sin is serious. And it cannot be something that marks the church. It's not that there's not sin in the church, but to go unchallenged, to go without any consequences, it cannot happen. Because God is purifying His church. So He purifies His church. He takes the life of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, I said this, many times we're shocked at that. I can't believe He did that. No, what we should be shocked at, that He doesn't do it more often. Because the wages of sin is, help me, death. Every time we sin, even though we, if you're in Christ, you're forgiven that sin, there's still consequences. If He wanted to take our life, He does it later. In, we see this in the book of Corinth when they're taking the Lord's Supper with the wrong heart. Some now sleep. Some were also, He took their life. He could do that and be perfectly just. We could still be forgiven, but there's consequences to sin. And He makes an example. He purifies, in a sense, the church early on so that the church can then, if we saw at the end of last week, can become powerful. A pure church is what? A powerful church. We can't be like the people on the outside. We are set apart. And when we're set apart and God begins to purify us, He begins to use us in great ways. And that's exactly what happened at the end of chapter 4. I mean, at the end of our passage last week, which is actually chapter 16, verse 5. Um, that's what happened. So, and, and it says that the church constantly was adding to their number. The church was growing. These miracles were taking place and the church, more importantly, the miracle of new birth was taking place in the lives of many people. Amazing. So, here's a question. How did the continual growth of the church go over with the powers that be in Jerusalem? Think, oh, wow, this is great. Oh, the church is growing. We really enjoy this. This is going to be good for our community. They're probably going to help the poor. They're going to help people with their houses and build, you know, handicap ramps for people. That'd be great. Is that how they respond? Now, we all know if we've read anything in the book of Acts already, we know that's not how they're going to respond. So look now at verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. The Jewish leaders did not like the fact that church was going and having, growing and having influence. They hated it. Look, it says they were filled with jealousy filled with jealousy. They were not open to truly considering the claims that the apostles were making about Jesus and His resurrection. You see, they were more interested, not in truth, but merely in, they were interested in popularity and power. And now that they felt that slipping away, as the church was growing at this point, over 20,000 people most likely, that power and that prestige and the, and the popularity were all slipping away and they decided we can't take this anymore. And they take the apostles, they lay hands on them and they throw them in a public jail. Most like, We know for sure it's Peter and John, most likely it's all 12. Now by, by doing so, they were showing that they were in complete control. They were the ones in power, right? I mean, that's what they were doing. They were, they were showing that they, they were in power, right? We'd agree. They were definitely in power. They were in complete control of this, weren't they? Uh, let's go on. Look at verse 19. But 
during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So who is in control? Who had the power? God shows that he was the one who had the power, that he was in absolute control of this whole situation. Now notice who it was who opened the gates of the prison. Uh, I love this. It says, an angel of the Lord. Now, you've got to know something here. This is irony of irony. And, and I do not mind saying or believing that God, in what we, what we can understand, that God smiles. All right? And his smile, and this is a little ironic smile here, because why? Because the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in angels. So what? who does God use to show he's powerful? He uses an angel. An angel. And God does it all the time. It seems like the things that we think we're in control of, we have power over, or we don't believe, well, I'll just use that, since you don't believe it. And that's what he does. He uses an angel. And you've got to laugh. It's okay to laugh. I mean, that, this is super ironic. So he uses angel, overcome the power of those who thought they had the power and didn't believe in angels. And just... So, you know, too, the Sadducees also didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And uh, he uses that over and over every time the apostles preach in Acts. It's about the resurrection of the dead. But God, through Luke, who's the author, the human author of Acts, wants to show that he is always in control and that nothing can stop his mission from being accomplished. The first readers of this book, they need to be reminded of that. You know what? We need to be reminded of that today, don't we? He is in complete control. Even when we look around and think, well, it doesn't look like he is. He is. And nothing will thwart, it says in, 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 in the King James, his sovereignty. Nothing can thwart or keep back his power and him accomplishing his mission. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? I'm going to ask some questions later that are going to challenge that. You may say, oh, I believe that. And I'm going to ask you, do you? Do I? Do we really believe that? This truth helped the early church and all those who come after them to handle persecution with a resolute and rejoicing heart and also the ability to persevere. Now notice in verse 20 what message the angel says for the apostles to preach. Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And also notice the first part of verse 21 that the apostles did how they responded to the angel's command. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. They obeyed. They obeyed. They did not just intellectually agree with some, some command given by God to the angel. They obeyed. And that's so important. So important. When we understand what the word believe, trust, faith means in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament concerning the gospel, it is not mere intellectual assent to some facts. It's a life-changing event where we trust so much that we will obey. That's the fruit of faith. They didn't sit around and say, oh, that sounds like a good idea to me. Who's going to do it? Well, oh man, let's, let's sit around and consider, just talk about what the message of life is. Oh man, that's wonderful. Oh, what do you think, John? Peter? Yeah? Oh, great. Matthias, what do you think? Oh man, isn't that wonderful? Now, I'm sure they talked about that and they knew what it was, but they did something. 
They preach the message of life. So what is the message of our life? Notice that phrase, the whole message, or some translations say the words of this life. This obviously refers to the message that brings life that is found only in Jesus. Back in Acts 3, uh, notice how Peter refers to Jesus in Acts 3.15. But put to death the prince of life. He's speaking to again to the Pharisees and to the, Jew, the Jewish people. They put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact at which we are witnesses. He was the prince of life. Or some translations say the author of life. Also, we see in John, in his gospel, the first uh, chapter, verse, one, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus was life. He is life. Then in John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is life. The message of life is the message of Jesus and it's the message of life in Jesus in, in that we were all born dead in our sin. We find that in Ephesians chapter 2. We were born dead in our sin. Dead in our sin and tre- trespasses in sin, it says. And God the Father sent Jesus to pay the penalty for sin and to give us new life. New life. We need new life. We're dead. We need life. We need to... To, to be given what we don't have. And that's the life of God in us. And how does this happen? It's by transferring our trust from ourselves and onto Jesus and what He did in our behalf. He then indwells us with His very life in the person of God, the Holy Spirit. That is the message of life. And it was in contrast with the message of death that the Jewish leaders, the high priests, the Sadducees, we'll see a little later, the Pharisees were all teaching. Now, let me say this. You're thinking, well, that was in contrast to the Old Testament. No, it wasn't. Because they weren't teaching the Old Testament. They were teaching their version and their interpretation, the oral traditions that changed the meaning of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the message of life as well. If anyone has told you the Old Testament teaches something different than the New Testament, they're wrong. It's always been, from Genesis 3.15 always been from right there where he promises a savior that would take care of sin it's always been through faith in jesus christ always by faith never by works don't let anybody kid you that's how it's always been it's always been listen to this christianity it's always been about christ from the very beginning and they messed it up they were preaching a message of death and yet the apostles were called to preach the message of life that would change people from the inside out. Well, let's pick back up this account beginning there in the second sentence of verse 21 when it says, Now now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. Now we already know that. All right, which, which makes this even more ironic. It's kind of funny. And they returned and reported back saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. 
Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and tend to bring this man's blood upon us. The high priest brought two charges against the apostles. Right, they go to looking for them. That is so funny. They go looking for them and they're not there. Everything's closed. The, the guards are still standing there. They have no clue what has happened. Although the, the gates were opened. I'm not sure what they were doing. They walk out somehow. Uh, the angel leads them out and he says go. And they go and they obey and they preach. And that's where they find them. Sure enough. And then, they, and then the high priest say, okay, I got two problems here. Two problems. Here's the two charges. First, you keep teaching about Jesus when we told you not to. I'm the guy in power. Who do you think you are? That's my first problem. That's the first charge. Second charge is you intend to bring this man's blood on us. In other words, you're saying we're responsible. You're blaming us for the death of your Jesus. Notice how Peter, speaking for the apostles, responds to the first charge of disobeying their order not to speak about Jesus. Look at verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Now this is similar to the response that we saw back in 19 and 20 of chapter 4 when the high priest gives the order not to speak. All right, And he says, Whether right inside of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot start speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter basically said, guilty as charged. Yes, we keep speaking and teaching about Jesus. You told us not to, we're guilty. Guilty right here. We keep on. But here's the problem. God's authority trumps yours. God is the one who's in authority. He is the one in power, not you. Does God have authority, or does God's authority trump man's authority in your life? Can you say with them, I must obey God rather than men, and I will obey God rather than men? Do you and will you obey God? That's a tough question, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking about some circumstances. Ooh, okay. If I obey God here, this is the consequences, this is what could happen. It's a pretty tough thing. Yeah? And yet God has final authority. Now we're going to return to this in a few minutes, so hold on. Now notice that how Peter responds to the second charge against him and the other apostles in, in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death, by hanging him on the tree. Peter says, yes, we're blaming you for the death of Jesus too. So he charged him with two things, and, and, and Peter the same claims every time, both times, guilty. Guilty as charged. Yes, you killed Jesus. Yes, we're blaming you. His blood is on your hands. Um, and yet, that it's, so, it's so funny because the nation of Israel actually said, let his blood be on our hands and our children's. And now they're saying, hey, don't blame us. We want to hear that. But you asked for it, and yes, we are. And yet he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, hey, you're guilty, and just stop. Look what he says in verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Yes, you put him to death. You, you killed him, thinking you had silenced him, but God raised him and seated him at his right hand. Listen to this as prince. What in the world is he referring to here? As prince. I believe 
It's a reference to Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. What does it say? Prince of Peace. The Messiah. God in the flesh. He is the one with all the power, not you. He's the Prince. He's the one that's been given authority, not you. That's what he's saying. He, that, 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 that he's at his right hand, God lifted him, and as a Prince... Not only as a prince, but as a savior, as John records in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, he is the prince with all the power, and he's also the savior with all the grace to provide forgiveness. You're guilty. He's the one in authority. That means you're in trouble, yet he's also the savior who provides repentance and forgiveness of sin. God the Father exalted Jesus to his right hand as Prince and Savior. Why? Look at the last part of verse 31. To grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Who is he speaking to right now? Israel. Who are they speaking to when they went when they were commanded to go to the temple and the center of the temple? Israel. Israel. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek, but to the Jew first. That's exactly what they do. They're, they're saying that He's saying here that God sent him as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He came to change the hearts of those who rejected him. Now look at verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter says that our job is to present this message in word and deed by the power of the Holy Spirit who is given to us because we... We repented and were, forget- and we were given forgiveness. That's what he's saying. That's our job. He changed us. We repented. We were forgiven. And our job is to tell everyone else about that. And, and the Holy Spirit and forgiveness can be given to all those who obey by repenting. Obey what? The gospel. Right? By turning from trusting themselves and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice it says, has been granted. Or he's granted to Israel. And later on we'll talk about and it says in Acts says and God has also granted repentance to the Gentiles. Repentance is a gift. We're called to repent. We're called to turn from trusting ourselves and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a gift that God enables us and gifts us what we need to do what he's called us to do, to obey by turning from us to him. Now don't miss this. Peter stands right up before these men and he says, yes, we disobeyed you because we must obey God. And yes, we're guilty of Jesus' death. But God has graciously made a way for you to be forgiven and made right with Him. You see what he's doing? Notice he doesn't say, yes, you're guilty, have a nice trip to hell. We saw this earlier in Acts in Peter's first sermon. We're saying, you're guilty. There's no doubt about that. You're guilty. You deserve hell. You deserve God's judgment. All of us do without Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't rejoice in the fact that they're guilty and they're heading to hell. And here's the sad thing. All too often, the church, who's been redeemed and been forgiven, who all deserved hell too, all too often, we've made the message that you're heading to hell. Have fun. Now maybe we don't say it like that. 
But we get angry at the sin in the lives of others. And we see this and we get angry. And we, you just go to hell! Now we, I don't know how many people say that, and I don't say that either, alright? But that's sometimes how we come across. Man, they're guilty. They're just dirty sinners. And we were too! We've got to not forget that. We've got to forget. We can't forget where we came from and who we were. But we do. We get on this side. Hey, man, I'm forgiven. I'm a saint. I'm a child of God. I'm a holy one. I've been called out by God. Yes, but you were. Just what they are. The things that you despise. Case in point, the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage this week. You were wondering if I was going to say something, weren't you? Ha! I'm going to say something. I need to. I need to say something. And I hope some of the garbage you've seen out there on Twitter and Facebook and on the news and all that kind of stuff, you don't buy into that. Some of us, and I'm just be honest, we've got to quit being republics and start being Christians. Or quit being Democrats and start being Christians. Or whatever it is. We're a follower of Jesus Christ. And we've got to reject the stuff that's out there right now. There's not a whole lot of good. I've read some decent stuff, but most of it's garbage. How should we respond to this? Just in case you have not been awake this week, okay? The Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four to legalize same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Now, it would be appealed and stuff like that, but I don't expect the appeal process will do anything. It's going to happen. There was people lined up the Missouri County Courthouse that day to get their marriage license. People of the same sex. How should we respond? We should be saddened. Saddened for our country. Saddened for the consequences that will come to our country. And just let me say this. The United States of America, and somebody will write me a letter, email, maybe even call me on this one, um, has never been a Christian nation. There's no such thing as that. Because God changes people from the inside out, not the outside in. So you can't force Christianity on people. All right? Were most of our forefathers believers? You bet. And was our country blessed because we followed Jesus Christ in, in general? You bet. That's true. There's no doubt about that. But I'm saddened that what has happened is going to bring consequences to our country, just like it did Rome a long time ago. Uh, it's going to happen. God will not bless that. Remember also that no human court can redefine God's definition of marriage. Marriage is still between one man and one woman. So just because the court said that doesn't change anything. It doesn't change what marriage is. So Some of those people out there writing, and maybe even you, just calm down. Marriage hasn't changed. It's God's deal. Religious liberty is not promised in the Bible. Did you know that? It, we claim it's, it, yes, and it's Hezekiah, probably it's in Hesitations, which is in the book. All right? All right? Right there, it's in Hesitations, chapter 2. It's not. Religious liberty is not promised in the Bible. In, in fact, the exact opposite is promised. Those who choose, choose to live a life will be persecuted. We've been living in a law-law land for a long time. While most of this world has been living in real life where they are persecuted for what they believe. Maybe it's about time that the church in America wakes up and maybe God will use this to wake up the church. And we'll find out really who follows Jesus and who doesn't then. I think it will be a blessing for the church. I spent a lot of time in Russia. And what they hated in some ways about communism falling, they liked it. They hated it about it too is because under communism they were persecuted the church was. And they knew who was on their side. 
when the persecution, the outright persecution stopped, they weren't really sure anymore. Because then it was pretty cool to go to church. Before, you might lose your life. So maybe God will use this. I pray that he does. John MacArthur, who, who had actually wrote a letter to pastors, this is what you could probably go find if you want to, and just how do we respond. One of the things he said I thought was really good. Another good thing to go read is John Piper's response on desiringgod.org, tremendous response um, to everything in a godly way. Um, listen to what John, John MacArthur says. Marriage is not the ultimate battleground, and our enemies are not the men and women who seek to destroy it. The battleground is the gospel. Be careful not to replace patience, love, and prayer with bitterness, hatred, and politics. The gospel can change anyone. The gospel can change anyone, and it's to be lovingly offered to everyone. To everyone. Even those who are in sin. And those who call what God calls sin, they call it good. Woe to them. But the gospel can change them. And I just want you to think about this. If the gospel can change... No, I won't say forgive me. I was going to say this. If gospel, the gospel can change you dirty, rotten sinner without Christ who is in rejection and rebellion of God, an enemy of God, the Bible says, all of us fall in that. Me too. If he can change you, he can change them. You've got to believe that. That needs to, or The gospel is the response. Not, are you, can you believe this? Are you getting this off? Or our country's going to go, yeah, it may go to hell in a handbasket. But we won't if we know Jesus. And they won't if they know Jesus. I've seen very little response with the gospel this week. And it saddened me for the church. I'm saddened for our country. But I'm more saddened about the church. And the response. And some of the things I've seen on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. I may have to cancel my Twitter now. And not because pornography. Because of, because of the bitterness and the hatred. It's been spewing from people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And they can sin, I can sin. And I can tell you, I didn't have a lot of nice thoughts either. All right, But thankfully, maybe God checked me before I got too far down the road. See, that is what Peter and the apostles did here. That's what they did. Yes, you're guilty. That is sin. There's no doubt about it. There's consequences of that sin. Yet, God can change you. He sent His Son to die for that. He sent His Son to die for those who reject Him. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Well, let's get back to our passage here. It's so in the province of God that this would be the passage this week. I didn't choose this passage. It chose me, right? I wasn't waiting around. I'm going to wait to preach this one until they do that. I had no idea what was going to happen this week. Like I'd forgotten they were even in court deciding that. I'm just how clueless I am. But uh, they decided it, and we were on this passage. Well, how did the high priest and all the other leaders respond to Peter's response? The message of life offered to those who repent and believe. How they, how they respond? That he's calling them. Repent and believe. Be changed. Look at verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill him. Now, sometimes that's what happens. <laughs> When we preach the gospel, when we call people lovingly to repent and trust in Jesus so they can be changed from the inside out and be made right with God, sometimes that's what they want to do. Yet we must keep obeying God rather than men. And a part of obedience of God is lovingly sharing the gospel with every creature on earth. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now look at verse 33, and I'm going to read down here almost the end of the passage. Um, or, uh, verse, verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, 
a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put them outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you purpose to do with these men. Now they wanted to kill him. All right. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Gamaliel, a Pharisee, which is another irony, <laughs> he stands up in front of the majority who were Sadducees in the Sanhedrin, but he's very respected. He, he stands up and he gives wise counsel. And he is you, and just for later's sake, Paul was discipled by Gamaliel, which is interesting. Um, and we'll get to that later. But um, he, 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 he stands up, he gives wise counsel. He's used by God to further the mission of the church, and yet he doesn't believe what the apostles are teaching. We must remember that God is not limited to who he can use to accomplish his mission, i.e. Pharaoh. In the Old Testament, he can use whoever he wants, even they hate him. He can use them to accomplish his mission. Now look at verse 40, um, beginning of verse 30 down through the re- 40 through the rest of the passage. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they released them. So they went on their way, in the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had considered worthy to suffer for shame for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The apostles, it says, were flogged. They were severely beaten. Flogging was 40 minus one lash. Not with a little rip whip that you buy at Walmart. With most likely what they call a cat of nine tails. It had multiple leather things coming off of it with bones and rock and glass all through it. Their backs were laid bare. And then they were released. How'd they respond? I'm done. I cannot handle this anymore. Is that what it says? Nope. With backs laid open. It says that they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Is this how we respond? in the face of persecution? Or do we whine and complain? And then notice what it says, and every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as a Christ. They kept right on preaching the gospel because they believed what Paul would write later in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. They believed the gospel could change lives. So they kept right on. They kept moving forward. These men handled persecution with with a resolute and rejoicing heart. And we can too. We can. So I told you I was going to give us five ways in which we can at least carry out some of the principles that are taught here. First one, if you're a note taker um, and like these things, that's great. I think it's helpful. Trust that God is in control. You've got to trust that. You've got to trust that with all your heart that He's in absolute control of all things. I'll just, I'll just tell you, I struggle with that even on more simple things. I struggle with that with our children. 
that God is in absolute control. I'm not saying anything about our children. All right? I'm just my hopes and dreams for my for our children. I, I struggle with that, but I got to keep reminded He's in absolute control. He loves them more than I do. And it's disgusted as I was and saddened by the response of the church. And I know a lot of people were going to look back and go, you know what, that, I should have never said it. That was stupid. I was, where was my mind? As disgusted as I was of that, i got to trust that God is in complete control and He's going to use the church. Remember, last week we talked about the imperfect church. No, no church is perfect. All right, He's going to still use the imperfect church as He continues to refine us to carry out His missions. We've got to, his mission, we've got to trust that he is in absolute control of all things. Secondly, present the message of life. Present the message of life. Jesus is the life. He is the issue. He is the center of the message. Without him, there is no message. I used to tell this when I we used to work for fellowship Christian athletes. I'd speak to different group, high school groups, maybe in college groups, and I would always write up on the uh, the board fellowship of Christian athletes. So what happens if you take Christ out of the fellowship of Christian athletes? Just take the word Christ, C H R I S T. You take that out, and you've got the fellowship of I A N athletes, the fellowship of I am nothing athletes. And if you just say this. The fellowship of I am nothing, anything without Christ. Christ, who is life, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the prince of life, the author of life. Without him, there is no message to present the message of life, which is the gospel. That's the good news, that we can be changed. That we can be given his life. Thirdly, you must obey God rather than men. We can't call something that's sin, good. And if it comes to in our country that churches are required to marry those of the same sex, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. We won't do it. We won't do it. I won't do it. Jared won't do it. We won't do it. Because we must obey him. Rather than men. And kind of going along with that, number four, believe that the remedy for sin is the gospel. Believe that the remedy of sin is the gospel. And the issue here, the biggest issue, we must obey God rather than men, is to preach the gospel. Obey God. Preach the gospel. Because we believe that the remedy for sin is the gospel. In our life and in everyone else's life. We must believe that. We must not be ashamed of the gospel because we believe it is the power to God for salvation. We, we've got to believe that. We've got to, and we've got to act like we believe it. So I'm just going to step on all our toes a little bit more here this morning, okay? Mine included. We've got to get off Twitter and Facebook and talk to real people. I used to, do, you, used to you know, play, when I played football... It's always some joker on the other sideline who never gets in. Man, what a kick your tail. Yeah, oh, he's giving all this kind of stuff. And he never gets in. And I'm like, buddy, step over the line, we'll find out. And he's going to stand in the back. And sometimes that's what we do with social media. We don't talk to real people. We're going to post this. Oh, go read this. Go read this. 
And, and, and some of that's good. I'm all for it. But that's all we do. And if that's all we do, that's, that's, there's a problem. Talk to real people. Love real people. Tell them from your mouth the gospel and how much you love them. Sending an email doesn't say quite as much as a letter, does it? We all know that. I love letters. I love love letters. All right? I love letters. And I used to be excited about the mail because people used to send real letters. And people don't send real letters anymore. I need to send more real letters. But it says a lot more. But even better than a letter is personal one-on-one. So quit standing on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. Get in the game. And talk to real people. And God will empower you to do that. Fifthly, be joyfully steadfast in presenting the gospel in the face of opposition. Be joyfully steadfast in presenting the gospel in the face of opposition. Joyfully. What, 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 a, what an honor. What an honor to be kind of worthy to suffer for Jesus. That's a badge of honor. Suffering for Jesus. That's a team I want to be on. Rejoice in that. And do it steadfastly. I'm going to throw up one of my favorite verses. I've preached on this verse a number of times. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord or is, your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain. Be steadfast. Keep moving. Well, some of you here this morning, hopefully you've heard the message of life. And if you don't know Him, my prayer is that you would turn from trusting yourself and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done to make you right with God. Because if you have not done that, you stand in the place of the Peter, the people that, that, that Peter was addressing. You're guilty. You're guilty of the blood of Jesus because your sin put Him there. But praise God, He grants repentance leading to life. And if you would repent and trust in Him, you can have new life and be made right with God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this account in Acts. We can look and see um, how the early church, which wasn't perfect just like us, responded to persecution. And Lord, when they were given a choice to choose you or man, they chose you. Lord, I pray we'd do that in love and in grace in such a way that can only be explained by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.